VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Welcome, it's Tuesday here in London Town, the eve of storm, what's it called this one coming? Babette. Babette's a weird name, isn't it? Well, it's a little bit close to my favourite name of all time, Barbara, oh. and so I don't like, I don't, I'm, I don't really like the the naming of storms and hurricanes and typhoons. Well, the weather's got a lot worse since we started giving them names. I As think people. it's given weather events ideas above their weather station, frankly. Yeah. Quite erratic and wild, aren't they? I think just a number would do. We just used to call it a bit of rain. We just used to call it autumn. Well, as you know, typhoons and hurricanes always had names. They always they were always giving people's Britain. names. Oh, I'm sorry, I was we're, just being global. Yeah, Jane. you're very much global and I'm very much Britain. But anyway, it is coming and batten down the hatches because it's going to be a bit of a mean one, I think. Yes, and as I always say, if you don't have a hatch, it's never too late. Get one. Get one. <laughs> Yes, I'm not sure that I have a hatch at home. Have you got a hatch at home? I don't know. I, um, what, was, what was that thing that people used to have before they knocked through? Well, you would. You'd um, have a hatch between your kitchen yeah, yeah, and your dining and room. Your dining room yeah. which you could just slide open. And actually, mm. I remember reading a very good radio review of you and Peter Allen oh, yeah. when you left Five Live, uh, written by the great Miranda Sawyer. Yeah. And she said that Pretty listening to you was like listening to an old married couple where the wife was stuck in the kitchen, occasionally shouting things through the hatch. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> I thought it was well, quite good. Probably did sum up that particular... Thank goodness I've moved on to this sapphic bliss I'm involved in now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, keep your bliss to yourself, love. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, so we have got... We must get a wiggle on because we've got a very important showbiz event to attend. But we do want to briefly mention, we've had a lot... Well, perhaps not briefly, we've had a lot of thoughtful emails from you in the light of the question that we punted out yesterday uh, because we'd had an email from Alexis, wasn't it? Um, I mean, gently chiding us, really, for not mentioning the Israel-Gaza situation. So Yes, it was Alexa, actually, but Alexa, I know I that that's now complicated because lots of machines have gone on, so sorry about that. I oh, think yeah. Alexis might be better. Yeah, OK. Um, so thank you to everybody who's taken the time to reply. Um, and this is from Elizabeth, who says... Um, I am Jewish, and whatever the reasons for people not commenting, I have never felt so isolated and even abandoned than over the past 10 days. I should add that it has felt like receiving a warm hug when non-Jewish friends have contacted me to see how I was feeling. It has also felt wonderful when public figures have expressed their empathy for the Jewish community and a sense of relief when they expressed their revulsion at the atrocities. However, I have wondered what is holding some people back. 
Of course there are some who rejoiced in the killings. I'm hoping they are a tiny minority. Are the other people too nervous to speak? And if so, why? Or do they just not care? Um, Elizabeth, thank you very much for, for writing to us. And I don't think it's that people don't care. I really, really don't. I think there are plenty of people, plenty of us, who aren't sure what to say. And um, it, it's funny that I, I did actually think twice before I texted a friend who is Jewish, but then I did, uh, just to ask her how she was. And the, But I was, because genuinely I just wasn't sure what to put in the message. Um, so in the end I just said, how are you? <laughs> just, but it's, it's, um, it's not an excuse, I'm just, I'm just sort of bumbling around trying to find a reason for why I thought about it for a few days before doing anything. And did you get a reply? Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, so, but, but, um, I don't want to sort of, don't want to invade her privacy. But it's, it's, um, it's definitely not Elizabeth. The, the, the overwhelming majority of people care. They, they really, really do. And it just may very well be that they just don't know quite whether to find the words, or whether they think that perhaps by talking about it to you, they might be adding to your pain or saying something awkward or stupid. I don't know. Yes, or making an identification about you based on your background, your ethnicity, your yes, culture, your religion, yeah. that has not been in a friendship before. Because I presume that that's part of your hesitation in simply contacting a Jewish friend, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I would feel the same, that there are lots of friends who I've known for years and years and years, Jane, where... We have never discussed the difference in our religious beliefs or if we have religious beliefs or how closely connected they still are to their Jewish communities or whether or not, you know, they've stopped going to the synagogue or ever did go. And it's just never been there in our friendships because it hasn't needed to be. And what a glorious thing that's been that we've all met and talked about and formed friendships over very different things, not necessarily over religion or ethnicity and now it's come to the fore and I think for a lot of people that is quite difficult in the same way that you know when other uh, you know atrocities have occurred you might not always feel that you want to uh, ask your Muslim friends how they feel you know feel about world events because you know maybe it's just irrelevant it's human pain it's mm. human suffering it's caused by darkness it's caused by evil they might not think that it has any direct connection to them and they're right to be able to have a distance oh yeah absolutely. so i think also some of the silence and we have talked about this before on the podcast perhaps in its uh, previous iteration actually and not here um i mean there definitely is a sin of omission isn't there when you deliberately ignore something and uh, you know therefore you just make it worse but i think as the horror unfolded after last Saturday, there were many people who who needed a bit of time, actually, to take on board the magnitude of what was happening and the loss that families were feeling. And so some of that, it isn't that you are downgrading it by not talking about it. You're simply processing something in your own head until a time at which you can find the right words. And I think it's also, um, it doesn't really need to be said, but it is perfectly possible to hold in your head two thoughts at the same time. One is that what happened on that dreadful Saturday was truly hideous, and I cannot imagine the pain that will be felt by uh, the people of Israel or indeed people who are Jewish in this country or elsewhere. You can absolutely think that, and you can also feel 
desperately upset at the suffering of those people gathered, for example, at that crossing, trying to get into Egypt with the hope that that crossing might at some point be open. Um, you know, if you watched a single news bulletin over the last couple of days, you've seen families, tiny children slumped on suitcases, leaning against... Uh, it's it's just hideous, and you can absolutely feel sorry for everybody involved. That's an entirely legitimate thing to feel, isn't it? Mm. And you, it's not a question of picking a side. Um, oh no, please don't pick a side. No, it's just it's you don't have to do that. You can just feel. I think I I, I don't normally say uh, you know as a parent and all that because I I think it, it suggests that if you're not a parent you don't have any empathy and that's bollocks. But sometimes when you do see uh, women struggling with two small children and a, a few bits of baggage, uh, whoever they are in the world, wherever they are, you just your heart does go out to them, um, doesn't it? It's just, there's just, if only there were more we could do about it. Anyway, um, we also talked about teachers and the impact on them and indeed the responsibility they might feel. And we'll keep this teacher anonymous. Um, oh, she says, I don't mind if you say it's from Rosie. I'm a secondary school teacher in a diverse part of London and many of our staff and students have been impacted by the events. We have to tread a very fine line in how we support students. As teachers, we must be politically neutral, but we can provide a safe space for students to talk and ask questions. We can teach them compassion and reassure them that they don't have to take sides. They can condemn an act of terrorism and they can feel solidarity with the Gazan and Israeli civilians who now live in fear. As teachers, we aren't afraid to admit we don't have all the answers, so we signpost reputable news sources and we carry on giving space for students to talk. At my school, we have 20 minutes of tutor time every day where this can happen and there is other pastoral support at lunchtime and after school, etc. Uh, Rosie, thank you very much indeed for that and uh, the best of luck. Uh, in your in your teaching career, I bet you're you're a good teacher. Can I just say we've got an email special coming up, haven't we? In two weeks' time, and I know that so many people have written to us over the last twenty four hours saying, "Please, pepper grinder conversations, clothes peg conversations." That's what we come to the podcast for, and that's what we really enjoy hearing, especially at the moment, the more light hearted stuff. Um, where you know that you're going to press play on the podcast and not be taken to a very dark place. So we really, really hear you. Uh, I would say that we will probably um, put some more serious emails into the email special in two weeks' time, if that's okay with everybody, because then we can kind of signpost when we're talking about really uh, difficult stuff. I just wanted to say that Elizabeth, uh, in listening in Calgary in Canada, uh, you've sent a really thoughtful email about what we were talking about regarding trans people being in hospital. Uh, so I'm going to do that one in the email special and I'm going to include a really, really good email that came in from Jenny on that topic. Uh, so that's just to mark your card about that. This email is from an ex-teacher, but they were in teaching for 35 years. Um, and this person has this assessment of his former colleagues. And I, I think you could probably say this about people, by the way, in any line of work. Outside their specific areas of expertise, teachers are, in my experience, representative of wider society. Most are thoroughly decent people with a fairly general, general knowledge of current affairs. Many probably couldn't locate Israel on a map. The majority prefer Love Island to Newsnight and Catchphrase to University Challenge. Some always vote in a general election. Some thought Boris Johnson was just what we needed. And a very small minority are sexist, racist bigots. Though in 99.9% .9 of cases, this would never show itself in the classroom. 
I've sat through enough well-intentioned but ill-informed assemblies about equality, diversity, racism, gay rights, the traveller community and capital punishment to know that expecting teachers to be able to cover such sensitive issues simply because they're teachers is an unrealistic ask. In too many schools this week, the edict from the senior leadership team will have been Jenny, it's your assembly on Thursday. Can you do something about Israel and Gaza? And form teachers, can you make sure you talk to your pupils about it in form time this week too? How could you do that? Right. Um, I take your point, and it goes back to what I've always said about teachers. It's an incredibly tough job. I wouldn't want to do it. Uh, and your assessment of... Do you think teachers really, some of them, the majority, prefer Love Island to University Challenge? <gasps> I, won't, I won't have that. No. No. Don't be ridiculous. Not now it's got its new host, especially. Oh, no, not definitely not now. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, but thank you. Um, I loved the email, and it does speak of a rich life experience. It certainly does. And how long would your average assembly be? I think uh, probably in my parental experience... Uh, on the school timetable, they've been anything between seven and nine minutes long. And you cannot explain the nuances of the Middle East in seven to nine minutes. Yeah. Have school assemblies got shorter then? Oh, yes. OK. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, Obviously, it's a while since I went to one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they can be quite compressed at the beginning of the day. Right. Now. But yeah. other people might have different experiences, as we always like to say, as a caveat for absolutely everything. Naomi says on Monday's podcast, you read a letter from a man who wondered how he could find out what you're doing next. You interpreted that as your job. And I think he meant what content you were covering on the next day's show. And I love that you pointed that out, Naomi, because we went straight for pompous, didn't we? That somebody <laughs> might be interested yeah, in our next I am really sorry. career move. Yes. Uh, but actually, there won't be any of those, I can assure you. You literally want to know Krishna Guru Murthy is on the show tomorrow he's talking about uh, his experience on Strictly Come Dancing uh, so thank you for pointing that out and Naomi goes on to say also my sister and her family adopted two gorgeous tabby kittens a brother and a sister from an animal shelter last week unfortunately these poor little creatures are still nameless please share your best name ideas well that is a beautiful challenge Naomi and one that I would like to throw out to our listeners so you've got little tabbies, a brother and a sister. Mm -hmm. Off you go. Yes, uh, we're not up to this task. But Jane and Fee and Times.Radio, uh, what is it? Jane and Fee at Times.Radio, uh, tell us what you would call a pair of tabbies, a girl and a boy. Yeah, that's Quite cute, fun. are they? Are they cute or are they like the one I've got? Well, uh, two gorgeous tabby kittens is the description that Naomi has used. I tell you what, I think one of Brian's uh, long-lost family has started roaming the garden. No. Well, you were very cynical about the fact that I think that Barbara has been visited by her errant father. This great big cat that turns up at the window and just kind of stares at her and puts her into a little bit of a tizzy. And my two cats are born of the neighbourhood love interest oh, I see. Are they? Yes. Okay. Yeah. so you really do think that it might be him I think so that's very and sweet and this, uh, this cat that's got exactly the same shape as Brian uh, turned up in the garden yesterday and I think that might be Brian's cousin so it's family times <laughs> <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies round at your place isn't it um, 
Emily, um, thank you so much for your email. I am so sorry uh, that you and your family have had such a tough time and lots of love to you and to your teenage boys. And um, thank you very much for emailing us and stick with Off Air. Uh, we will try to keep it. We'll keep, we'll keep it as uh, kind of light and shade as we always have. I think that's the, that's the way forward. But we, I mean, we don't know what lies ahead in the next couple of weeks and we'd be a bit ridiculous never to discuss um, what is going on in the wider world. But, no, but um, I just don't want people to think that we're not discussing it because we don't care or we don't think it's important. We absolutely do. Um, but, you know, we want to make room for people who come to this just to yeah. uh, fall asleep, really. Yeah. And I know that lots of people do, and we don't mind that. Absolutely. Well, I do a bit, actually. I was going to say absolutely not. It's not true. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, Katie's in, uh, she's in Boston. I always appreciate, Jane, how you represent your Irish heritage, like you did yesterday in asking for a summary on Irish leaders. As Yes, that was because Ian Dale has written his book about English monarchs. And what was the statistic was incredible, that English and British monarchs he'd written his book on. If he'd included Welsh and Scottish, they'd, it would have been how, many, how much longer? Oh, no, I don't think it was, I think it was nothing more than a guesstimate. I think it was kind of, you know... But you it would just have said maybe three times. It would have big. been an impossible book to lift up, basically. Yes. So no offence intended. I said he should have done something on the High Kings of Ireland. I only mentioned that because my nan used to tell me I was descended from Irish royalty. Truly, I believe she was making it up. Uh, but it but stuck a bit, didn't it? It, it certainly stuck. <laughs> I've, I've clung to the idea that I may be of regal blood. <laughs> God, that was. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what my mum's family are incredibly proud of having been servants, Jane? And that might lie me that one of the many differences between us. Well, there's nothing wrong with being servants. No, but that's what I'm saying. So they're really proud of their heritage, which is not, you know, I, I've not been told that I I'm mean, related to royalty. I, I, I've been absolutely told all the way through my life that our family, my mum's family, uh, you know, were carriage drivers and maids and housekeepers and. And I've loved those stories, actually, really, really loved those stories. Mm. I've not imagined myself to have been uh, <laughs> uh, born to a tiara. No, um, I should point out that my nan uh, was born in Bootle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's but by the way, um, there's plenty of royalty comes from that part of the world. Um, and she did carry herself. She, had, she was a tiny lady, but she did carry herself with a certain amount of regal authority. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if she had a spot, more than a spot or two of royal blood. Yeah. I mean, we are going back here to very, very, very mists of Celtic time. We need to be very clear about that. But Katie in Boston enjoyed it. And she, I sense that she's from the same DNA as myself. Mm. Do you want to be serious for a moment? Um, my mum is in the family, the kind of genealogist, and she's done lots of fantastic research um, going back. And, and it's one of those things, isn't it, that I don't think you're really that interested in when you're a kid, mm. but when you get older, you do become more fascinated by it. Um, but her mum, so my, my granny, Granny Grace, she left school when she was 14, Jane, mm. and she put herself through bookkeeping college because mm. she wanted to you know, do something with her life and she was really, really good at maths. And she then had to go back to look after her mum, who was really ill. And that long arm of caring you know, yeah. takes many female opportunities away. So she did that and nursed her mum until she died. And the local GP noticed that she was just really, really good uh, with people and had an interest in the, you know, the medical side of caring. 
uh, so encouraged her to become a nurse. So she put herself through nursing college, which is how she then met my grandfather, uh, who had trained as a doctor and come down from Edinburgh. They met at UCH. But it's just such an extraordinary story of how much changes in three generations. You know, the idea that uh, she left school at 14, you know, when I was still very securely looking ahead to my O-levels, you know, with this future ahead of me where I was being encouraged to go to university and it was absolutely assumed that I could and that I would then, you know, be able to have a career, have a job. Um, my the, the same granny also had to give up nursing when she got married. Well, of course. Them's the rules. So it's incredible, isn't it? Well, Just I, how I, quickly things turn. It really is incredible. And I don't think we can say often enough that our lives are so, so different from our grandmothers. Unrecognisable. Absolutely yeah. unrecognisable. And it's, it, but it's, it's rarely discussed. It's, it's just a weird thing. I mean, we're, just, we're talking about it, but on the whole, it's never even acknowledged. Mm. Um, and it's just not that long ago. So I wonder what then happens, uh, you know, if you spool forward two generations. So we both have daughters, and I'm not being pejorative by not talking about male opportunities, but it is the female opportunity that's changed so much in those two generations. So do you think the pace of change carries on, or do you think it slows down? Massive question for you there, Jane. That really is a massive question, one I don't feel up to answering. Okay. Uh, But perhaps the listeners will have a view on that. Love to hear some thoughts on that, Um, yeah. I mean, it's a big big argument, isn't it? Have have women... Well, we have. Of course we've made progress. Have we peaked? I I think I may have. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what's that terrible thing? Never take yourself too seriously because your children's grandchildren won't know your name. Yeah, children's grandchildren. Yes, that. And it's true. Yep. You'll just be a little... Well, you'll be a little name on my mum's genealogy board. That's Mm. all you are. Yeah. Yeah, but love some thoughts on that and um, maybe that would enable people to tell us some lovely stories about their own family trees. I'd welcome those. Yes, it would be very interesting. I bet everyone's got, they've got, everyone's got a grandparent story in their locker, haven't they? I hope so. Mm. Don't let them linger in the locker. Bring them out. Right, our big guest today is... Oh, it's John Waite, uh, who you... Uh, well, you read his book, didn't you? I, I confess I joined the interview uh, but I was not the person who was leading on this particular interview. And I know that you really enjoyed it. It's a book of revelations, isn't it? That if you only know John because he won Bake Off and he was then the runner-up on Strictly and uh, has been doing a lovely turn uh, as a TV chef on mm. Steph's Packed Lunch, uh, you wouldn't really know uh, that his life has been quite so bumpy, actually. Well, it really has. And the book is called Dancing on Eggshells. He does he does reveal a lot in this book, actually. And we need to make clear that there are some sensitive subjects in this conversation with John. There are also some lovely subjects, so please don't be put off. But... If you are affected by any of the bigger and more challenging issues in the conversation, then please do email feedback at times.radio and you'll be pointed in the direction of places you can get help. But here is John Waite, a winner of the Bake Off and a runner-up on Strictly, and he came to our studio last week in the company of his wheelie case. So we wanted to know where he was going. Oh, I've just, I've, I don't know really. Well, I do know. I was at an event last night. Yeah, don't lie. Um, I, do, I completely know. <laughs> and I'm at event, an event tonight and I'm going to Cheltenham Literature, not Literary Festival uh, tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah, I've just had to bring all, all my outfits, but I'm really sorry for what I'm wearing before you right now. Um, I'm wearing what can only be described as a, a chav, chav ensemble. 
Which well, you can say that about yourself, but I certainly wouldn't say that. Would you not? No, and I travelled up with you in the lift, and you immediately apologised for what I thought when I'd seen you when I was coming up the escalator was just a very nice kind of gym kit. I thought you were just wearing a lot of athleisure wear. Well, what it is is I was at um, a retirement village last night, and I split my jeans doing a slut drop with some of the uh, retirees. Jane, do you think this is the best sentence that anybody's ever uttered so far <laughs> on really, our podcast? It really, shows promise. <laughs> I've got a better sentence, but I don't, I'm not sure I could speak about then finish it. finish the story. You're in a so, retirement uh, village. So, yeah, I was in this retirement village. It's Tonic Housing um, in Vauxhall. And it's the first, and I think so far, only LGBTQ plus retirement village. Oh, I've read about it, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, do you know what? what the, the work that they are doing, it's just... I mean, I was in tears all last night and all this morning because it's these micro injustices that the com- my community has suffered and continues to suffer that if we speak about them, a lot of people who don't really need to think about them say things like, what are you moaning for? You've made progress. What are you moaning for? But it's not about moaning. It's about saying this is still an injustice. So it was really lovely to see the uh, the retirees and or the inmates, as one of them called themselves, uh, last night at the, at the tonic housing. But there was a drag queen performing, and I got a little bit rowdy and did a couple of slut drops, and then I sat down and looked crotchward, and the crotch was no longer there on my jeans. So I've had to come to you in sweat wicking technology outfit mm. athleisure wear today. Do you not carry a small sewing kit with you, John? No. Oh. Well, you've let yourself down. And can I say you've let rural Lancashire down? Uh, But never mind. I could have used a stapler. I could have stapled the crotch. No, that's very dangerous. It's a really, really serious point that um, the lives that are led, not always in Britain, but can now be led in Britain by gay people, are so, so different to... 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, presumably that the people that you met and spoke to were people who'd had to hide. They were people who had to live their lives as a lie and live their lives in fear. And it was interesting because there was also a panel discussion there last night with um, a really senior psychiatrist at the Maudsley Clinic. And he really made it quite clear how damaged and how damaging that kind of those kind of microaggressions over the course of a lifetime can be. And some of the retirees, some of the residents spoke very, very beautifully about how it affected them and continues to affect them, even though they are now in a place where they have a sense of community. And it it makes me think about my future, my partner's future. Like if I lose my partner, you know, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Where will I end up? Who will look after me when I'm in that final chapter of my life? Because... And and I know that queer people can have children and maybe one day I will. But even if you do have children, it doesn't mean that they're going to look after you because some children are terrible, some parents are terrible. But I think there is, not to be, to, to kind of perpetuate stereotypes, but there is still a lot of loneliness within the gay community. And it's it's fearsome. It really is fearsome. And without giving any identities away, is there anything that you'd be able to tell us of somebody's story from last night yeah. that might make exactly those points? Yeah, so an older gentleman um, had lost his partner and they'd uh, they'd set up a kind of a, a, a home for themselves, like a bungalow with all the amenities and he'd lost his partner and he just felt the, the, the biggest barrier for him then was loneliness and he, fe- he felt that he could go nowhere. And so when he found Tonic Housing, he was able to become a part of a community again and have people to love him and look after him and communicate with. Um, but I made a, a little kind of VT about this 
excuse me, Arne's desk pack lunch, um, gosh, about two years ago. And I didn't, even I didn't realise that LGBTQ um, people of, a, of an older age often have to go back into the closet when they go into a, a retirement village because there is still so much discrimination against them. And it just, it just, I just really, and, and you know, in the month that Suella Braverman has used LGBT asylum seekers as a wedge for her uh, political uh, swinging, I just feel we need to stop these, the use of these microaggressions against our community. We need to try and get to equality for for the right reasons. Well, there's clearly still uh, work to be done. And and your book, um, Dance on e Dancing on Eggshells, is the name of the book. And it's um, it's a great title because it takes your two reality yes. TV worlds and merges <laughs> them. Um, but it also hints at the fact that your life has not been easy and it certainly hasn't been without challenge. And um, I just wonder, do you think, in a way, reality television, wonderful though it is for the viewer, actually attracts as participants the very people who should avoid it like the plague. I have that exact belief. I really, really do. I think the very nature of reality TV, I think, is that it kind of promises something. It's a, it's a, an unspoken contract, isn't it, in a way? It's an unspoken promise that it will give you something, the attention, the validation, um, success, money, celebrity. And I think the people who are most vulnerable to that and to that, the desire for those things are the people who will apply not all of them of mm. course but i do feel that bake-off was and is still different i don't see bake-off as a reality tv show i see it as a talent show um and i applied for bake-off for my love of baking and i did strictly for the well it's a great gig let's face it strictly but also it was an opportunity to to undo some of the injustices against the community of which i'm a part um so I do agree with you on that. I do. Um, and I do think that's particularly why there needs to be much more due diligence and care from commissioners, from channels uh, towards contributors. Mm. I think they should have to pay into an independent welfare body that then looks after those people after the event. So um, young John growing up on a farm in rural Lancashire, I think you, you, were, you took to the stage, first of all, in Chorley. I did. Is that correct? My birth town. Your birth town. And a place that I think Victoria Wood particularly loved references to Chorley. <laughs> yeah. There is, there is something, there's something about Chorley. Uh, there's a Chorley cake, isn't there? Or a Chorley... Yeah, Chorley cake is similar to an Eccles cake. Right, and I okay. really should know the difference, but you I should. don't. So I'm yeah. not even going to try to declare what the difference is okay um so your family um was obviously it was you and your dad and your mum and your sister yes two uh, sisters two sisters two sorry sisters. forgive me and then your parents split up which you you really do believe had quite an impact on the young john oh completely i do i think you know they they had to split up and i don't hold that against them of course i don't uh, but i do think that that loss of a father figure for me he was still very much in my life um, but I think the loss of a father figure for me was a difficult thing to, to navigate. Um, and just just that frantic, horrible separation and the change, particularly the change from being this very working class estate, grew, growing up on an estate, to moving to my stepfather's house, which was a middle class farmer's old eerie barn. And he's a wonderful person, my stepdad. I don't ever, you know, want to hold anything against him but it was that it was that shift in the class system for me I think that I found most troubling and difficult 
What's also so fascinating about the book, you, you write very frankly about your, your bulimia, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, yeah. but I do remember from that time, obviously a lot older than you, but the mixed messages around food. I mean, your family ran a chippy. Yes. And uh, But your mum was mad keen on Weight Watchers. Yeah. And there's, you, there's a great line in the book about an assistant in the chip shop who would dip... <laughs> A sausage balm cake into Weight Watchers soup. Yeah. I mean, this is just all over the place, isn't it? It is. It's very contradictory and very, very. It's just it's bonkers, and that's what it was like. There was the calorie ca- the calorie counting books that you get free with magazines. Yeah. That was wedged behind the till in the chip shop, and every time my sister or my mum or any of the girls would eat something, they would go through that book and torture themselves based on the calories. They wouldn't just allow themselves to have a plate of chips, well, a, a scoop of chips or a mm. cone of chips. They, they had to then think about, oh, we'll put extra vinegar on it because the vinegar will help reduce the carbohydrate yeah. intake. And, you know, they were constantly thinking about mitigating what they were doing, mitigating their enjoyment and their lives. And that, for me, I think, had an impact on uh, dysmorphia, body dysmorphia and body image, for sure, I think. And your dad made a point of saying he really didn't like fat people. Yeah, he did. He's, he's very neurotic, my dad. I hope I can say that about my dad, but he is. Um, very, very controlled, very slender. Uh, he likes to stay in shape. He's 81 and he still rides his push bike and he's, he can still do a headstand. He's remarkable. Um, but he was quite vociferous about fat people. And I think that had an impact. Of course it does, because it made me question what are fat people really unlovable? If, if, if the person that I, one of the people that I look, look up to most in life and trust with all my soul is being quite vocal about fat people, what does that say about that? So I think it was a very conflicted um, attitude that my entire family had towards food. And that undoubtedly has become ingrained in me. But you went on Bake Off, and I should yeah. say that in between the, the really soul-bearing stuff in this book, there are recipes for lovely food. I mean, it's, it's all in there. Um, but I suppose, I, as a reader, I've got to be honest, John, I was a bit... I wasn't sure what to make of the recipes in amongst how honest you've been about everything else. Well, I I kind of wish we'd not put them in uh, because my publisher said we want you to put recipes in there. And for the audiobook as a particular, I said, can we take them out? And they said no. And I really wish I'd just put my foot down and been quite insistent on the fact because I do think they distract from the narrative. I love the recipes and some of them are very, very pertinent to the stories. Um, But I do think perhaps they would have been better... uh, all assembled together at the end in like a little reference. Yeah, I, I guess in a way that's a technicality, isn't it? But it's just because it was such a contrast to what, what else you were saying. But I guess it kind of is fairly symbolic of my life because food for me, and I say this in the book, is both a, a, a saviour and a terrorist, I think, along the lines of, of that. I think, you know, food is something that I adore and I love to put all my creative energy into, but I am absolutely frightened to this day of what food can do to me because if I get started on... Um, anything, like anything sweet. My biggest problem is cereal. If I have cereal in the house, that is then that then triggers a bulimic binge and purge, undoubtedly. And then I'll finish the box, go to the shop, buy another box, and I'll just do that until I am in agony. And so I think it's those creature comfort foods for me that are very, very triggering. So I guess really that peppering of recipes throughout the book, albeit fairly random and a little bit disjointed, does probably represent my attitude and my relationship with food. 
this is actually in many ways a very serious book. I, I think people might be a bit surprised by how serious it is. And you do talk too about your, your first sexual experience, yeah. which was when you were very young, you were 13. I was. And the man in question was 30? Yeah. Or in his 30s, he was 30. Yeah, 30. Um, I mean, how do you regard that now? As abuse. And it's taken me a great deal of contemplation to get to that point because you know I was a randy teenager I was horny of course I wanted to do things with with hot older men but that isn't the point the emphasis isn't on what I wanted the emphasis should have been and is on him he had he he was in a position of power over me you know he was 30 he was very close to me and my family and he ought to have I was groomed he groomed me because he continued to to say things like oh you've put weight on you know, and it wasn't just this one encounter, it continued, the one sexual encounter that I referenced in the book, it continued. So I, I look back now and I accept that it was grooming. As hard as that uh, conclusion is to come to, it was grooming. And I think it's a particularly important story, albeit a very small story of the book, because I do believe that children, when they are at that kind of very important point of transitioning to adulthood, and particularly queer children or, or non-binary, non-gender children who are kind of questioning uh, th themselves, they are more vulnerable, I think, to abuse. And I certainly was. And I think that encounter or those encounters uh, have, have led me to be much... to be very disrespectful with my own sexuality and my own body. I kind of treated myself and continue in some ways to treat myself like an object when I should treat myself with nothing but dignity and pride. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com We are talking to John Waite. He, of course, appeared on Strictly back in 2021 as part of the first male same-sex partnership with Johannes Radeby. Yeah, we were, so we were the first um, male male partnership yeah. uh, following in the footsteps of, of, of Katia and Nicola Adams. And you, I think, initially said yes to it, but you said you'd be better off dancing with a straight man. Mm. Now, that, can you explain why you thought that would somehow be more palatable? Yeah. To, to the audience. Yeah, that's I, I use that word precisely palatable because I think well, what I thought was that if we, if it was if it were two gay men, if it were Johannes and me, it would be somewhat about the gay 
agenda, I guess. I hate that, that, that word agenda, the gay agenda, but I think that's what people would think it would be about. So not my opinion, but what people would think. Um, and I just thought if we were more palatable, then it wouldn't lead to the distress and the, dis and the kind of violent closing off of the television on a Saturday night. You know, parents wouldn't say, I'm not watching this, this is disgusting. If it were me and say, Kai or Graziano, they'd just see it as dancing. But I worried that they wouldn't be able to see past our sexualities were it to be me and Johannes. So I thought if, if, if I asked to dance with a straight man, then it would be more palatable and it will be more acceptable and we'll be okay. And did the Strictly people try to persuade you otherwise or did, were they prepared to go along with whatever you wanted? I didn't have a say, I don't think. I told my agent and he said, you've not really got a say, but I'll put it to them. Right. Because I think they, they do the, they figure out who's going to go with who very, very early on for height reasons, for location reasons, mm. you know, and we were in the, well, we were at the tail end of COVID. So we, they had to be very careful about movement of people and all of that. Uh, so I don't think I had a say. And I'm glad I didn't. And your, I mean, it was amazing to see you dance. And actually, I thought the Met, it was just incredibly life-enhancing and powerful. But we, we talked earlier this week, I mean, I know this is going out next week, I'm getting very confused now, <laughs> um, to, to Shirley Ballas yeah. about her own experience, not just of being on Strictly, but about being in the dance world. I'll listen to it. Huh? It's bloody, I mean, it's, John, it's just, it just sounds like a tough old place to be. It sounds awful. Yeah, I mean, she didn't make, she didn't sell it. I mean, clearly, my chance of a life in professional dance, I feel, Fee, may, do you think I have not a chance? I think you got a shot. Uh, I'd never give up the dream, Jane. <laughs> well, no, I don't have a dream because, honestly, it sounds like a nightmare. Did Shirley mean, shatter your dreams? She, she did slightly. Well, no, I, she just, I mean, it, it had just sounded like it had been tough on her. Yeah, it, yeah. It, If half of the stuff that is yeah. in her fictional debut novel is even remotely adjacent to the truth. What a nightmare. What I know. a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to that that and I was just uh, I was blown away by the name Topaz Pringle. Oh, what a brilliant thought, memory you've what got. A brilliant name, <laughs> yeah. Topaz Pringle. I'll never be able to eat a Pringle again. No, she's destroyed Pringles. For yeah, all of she's us. ruined it. She's ruined all, all Saturday night snacks. But she's amazing to have survived, I think, a very, very long career, right at the top of dance. Uh with, uh, I, I, I think with herself intact, actually, and possibly a, a decent amount of self-awareness, mm. I mean, apart from anything else, about how she feels about her body. And she is definitely somebody who has acknowledged a eating disorder that mm. has lived alongside her for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, do you rather yeah. wish that you had not entered a world where your eating disorder was going to be so challenged again the tv world yeah well the dancing world with everybody looking at your body john i mean you are you know uh, you are a statuesque man <sighs> you are very beautiful to look at jane would agree with me here I and you see. know that people you know that people are going to be enjoying watching you don't you well <sighs> i think that's part of the world we live in and i think that's part of me trying to make myself statuesque and, and chiselled as possible to be presentable for the reasons we spoke about before. Um, but I do think... I do think this career, this industry, definitely proliferates my bulimia. And I've come to that conclusion recently and decided to take some time off from the Channel 4 show that I do with, with Steph McGovern, Steph's packed lunch, because 
I'm increasingly aware that there is a direct correlation between being on television and feeling out of control in the industry when I want to make documentaries about LGBT rights and retirement homes for queer people, but I'm kind of being shoehorned into being the camp chef on daytime TV. There is a direct correlation between that lack of control and my bulimia. And for years, like I thought, what's going on? What is the trigger? Is it my parents? No, it's not. They're amazing. Um, But there was some kind of narcissistic entity above me that was controlling me. In, in terms of my bulimia. And I think I believe that to be now television. I love the industry. I love to entertain. I love to show off. But I, <laughs> Welcome I, to the club. Don't <laughs> worry about it. Do I get a membership card? Yeah, you're very much. Absolutely fine. <laughs> but I do, I question whether it is, it, it's healthy for me. I question whether I can get to a, a place rather where I am healthy with it. Um, and I think I could get there, but is it going to be difficult to get there while I'm still part of it? Probably. So I need to take a bit of time back and just take a step back and just kind of rethink. Well, we should. We haven't got time to, to do everything about your life and times, but you, you went to Oxford, you got into Oxford, and it, it wasn't for you. You've got, no. a, you've got a law degree now from Manchester. I mean, the world, forget television, the world is your, is your oyster, isn't it? I don't like oysters. No, I don't either. I really think they're so overrated and snobbish and I hate, yeah, I hate that kind of upper-class ownership over food. What should we put in the place of oyster, then? The world is the your... The world is your... Well, it can't be Pringle anymore. Gummy bear, Haribo. I'm obsessed with Haribos. Okay. So. The world is your Haribo, that yeah. works. Yeah. yeah. That was John Waite uh, talking to us um, about his memoir, Dancing on Eggshells. Now, if you have been affected by any of the issues, then please do email feedback at times.radio and you'll be able to find help right there. So, uh, let's make a gear change. Has your new Peugeot pepper mill arrived yet? It hasn't. Oh, gosh. How are you coping? What are you using to grind the corns? I'll tell you what. I, I don't know why. I made that ridiculous boast yesterday about the lentil bolognese. How was it? Pie. <laughs> God, I mean, no word of a lie. Um, it did create wind. I mean, I, do, I know lentils are known for their wind manufacturing properties, but by God, <laughs> it, was, it was really quite uncomfortable at moments during the night. Anyway, the thing about lentil uh, bolognese is it actually, I really do think it's quite tasty if you do it right. And with the combination of a very, very, well, I was going to say buttery uh, topping, of course it wasn't buttery because it was vegan, uh, with a potato topping. It was, very, it was, it was very satisfying. It was a nasty sort of slightly chilly bordering on almost wintry night last night. So it was just the job and the after effects lingered a little too, too long. But all in all, it was eight out of ten for the little chef here. I think I did pretty well. I don't really want to share a cab with you into the West End now. I might just get the tube. No, but I'll go, okay. I'll go halves with you. Okay. Um, and I'll sit. Do you want me to sit completely the other side of the cab? If you can sit on the little swingy down chair and open the window then I'll be very grateful okay so we'll have showbiz tales to tell because Jane and I are off to Claire Balding's book launch so she's written a new book called Isle of Dogs Jane's making a face in the studio listeners because it is a book about dogs so your Dora gets a tiny mention and she did come and interview Nancy uh, for a whole chapter which you're already livid about but it's a lovely chapter it's about rescue dogs it's about the karma of uh, of adopting a midlife dog and it is a beautiful thing and oh, she sure really loved Nance Nance really loved her they've kept in touch have they? excluded me from the friendship oh, yeah. well, that's a very very happy tale um, no pun at all intended I'll buy I'll do my duty I'll buy a copy of the book and um, hopefully there'll be is there a drink? I'm sure there'll be drink 
Darling, is it the drink I like? I think it might be. I think it might be. But uh, hopefully we'll see lots of... We might see some ex-colleagues there. People have been invited to bring their dogs. So that's going oh, to be Oh, there are fun. dogs? Yep, there'll okay. be dogs. Yep. Right. Oh, gosh, I'm afraid that reminds me of the People's Pet Awards. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it's 13 months now since the People's Pet Awards. So we weren't invited back. That means we weren't yeah. invited back to this year's. And we've had another blow because I read in the newspaper today something about the Woman of the Year lunch. We weren't invited to that either. No, What's apparently happened? that went on completely unencumbered by us earlier this week. It must have been rubbish. Absolute rubbish. That's terrible, Jane. What have we done? What have we said? Perhaps I had win that day as well. We were a hot ticket last year. We completely was it last blown year? it. No, you. When was the last Women of the Year lunch you went to? My God, there's a pattern forming here. We haven't been invited for years. This is dreadful. Absolutely shocking. Right. Well, at least Claire's invited us, I suppose. Okay. Right. Uh, so tales to tell tomorrow. It's Jane and Fee at Time Stop Radio. Thank you for all of your lovely emails. We'd love to hear about your grannies, and we'd love to hear about the lighter side of life. Do send stuff about the more serious side of life and we will put those in an email special. Uh, but we do appreciate all of the people who bothered to write in to say, uh, just keep us going a little bit. With I dropped a T there, I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know why I did that. Trying to be all youth. A little bit of a laugh. So we aim to please. <laughs> well, I do. That's all you ever get here. Jane I mean, the Imperious. A I little bit of a laugh. A little bit. That's what we can guarantee. Okay, have a good evening. Goodbye. We'll check in tomorrow. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, ladies. A lady listener. I'm sorry. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.